This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. Guys, what I want to talk to you about is the Oscars. They just happened uh, this past Sunday evening. And actually, a fun fact about my life is that I live with a fellow sociology professor, Clayton Childress. And so our dinner table conversation is basically your banter segment, just a little bit more yelling. <laughs> and so this past Sunday, you know, we've been like obsessed with talking about the Oscars, more specifically the fallout from what happened this year, which is that it was the lowest rated Oscars since the Nielsen rating system began in 1974. And so, you know, Clayton and I have been batting around a bunch of different hypotheses to explain this ratings drop, but I'm wondering what you all think about it. Well, and it wasn't just a drop because there's been a long-term secular trend uh, towards lower Oscar ratings, but it was like a 20% drop. That's right, 20% like year drop over year, year over year. Big. Yeah, uh, so it's like you, you can't compare it to like the ones in the 80s because, you know, everything in TV had higher ratings in the 80s. But, um, you know, even just compared to last year when not that much was different, it was a pretty big drop. Well, if you read Fox News, it's the Trump effect that everybody's tired of those Hollywood liberals and their political views. Well, why don't we talk about the long run trend and then we'll talk about what might have accounted for this year in particular. All right. right. So, um, you know, in the long run trend, I think there's two things going on. Number one is that TV ratings have been going down for everything because we don't have three channels anymore. We have a million channels and we have, you know, Playstations and DVRs and Netflix and all that sort of thing. And so the ratings for almost everything have been going down. Um, you know, so famously, if you look at any show that got canceled, you know, even f- five or ten years ago, it would be a number one hit by today's standards, or at least top five hit by today's standards, just because mm-hmm. there's this, you know, increasing supply of television. And so the ratings for any given show go down. Um, and then number two, uh, something that's less specific to it just being a television program, but more about the Oscars themselves is that the box office for Oscar films has been going down. And, um, you know, it used to be that the Oscars were about movies that people had seen and that people liked. And increasingly it's the case that, um, the Oscars, well, actually not increasingly, it's been the case for about 10 years that the Oscars are entirely about movies that nobody's seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think of all the best picture winners, the only one that made, uh, you know, as Variety used to say, Bafo box office was uh, Dunkirk. But aside from that, it was a bunch of tiny little movies that nobody had really seen. Yeah, I think uh, to your point, you know, with like the rise of television as prestige media, uh, mm-hmm. movies and movie stars don't have that star power that they used to. Um, so, you know, I think like part of this is maybe also the cord cutting aspect, right? Like the move mm-hmm. to streaming content. And so it's tough to even say like, how many people were watching it because Nielsen probably wasn't able to capture how people were watching it, you know, if they were um, sort of illegally streaming it, using a variety of means Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to watch the show. So there's probably, you know, like multiple things going on that are related to that. Well, the media measurement has uh, changed to include uh, legitimate streaming, although uh, pirated streams probably wouldn't be captured. Yeah, I also think, I mean, it's, I think people anticipated being lectured to this year. 
right? Um, you know, with the whole Time's Up movement and um, that we saw at the, was it the Golden Globes? It seems so long ago, um, <laughs> right? And then also, you know, people, you know, talk, you know talking about uh, diversity uh, in terms of, in terms of race in movies and is this going to be, you know, I, I don't know, like excitement and buzz about Get Out because people were thinking that it could win. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of it was that people, you know, they kind of want to be entertained um, at the Oscars. They want to be able to say, see glitz and glamour. Um, and they increasingly don't want to be lectured to. And I think people anticipated a lecture. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And by the way, I, I forgot Get Out was also nominated, right? Which was also a genuinely popular film. So that's two out of like seven or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, where the rest of them, I think, had box offices of under 50 million. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there might be something to that of like it being a lecture. And, you know, I watched about half the uh, telecast. I had to leave and go pick up my daughter for, you know, the other half. Um, but I noticed that it was interesting that the... Um, they seem to have realized that they were going to have a lot of lectures, uh, but they also tried to kind of counter-program that, where I noticed that the uh, the lecture, you know, the explicit monologue content was fairly didactic from one side, but the uh, a lot of the montages were implicitly didactic from the other side. So you had that one montage of, like, you know, a salute to the military from the movies, mm. um, mm-hmm. you know, which struck me as, like, some type of attempt to counterbalance in a subtle way. Mm-hmm. I think... It's something that sort of does give us a bit of an indicator about where we might accrue some of this uh, some of this drop is like if you look at the drop Gabriel you mentioned it was a 20% drop over last year for the actual Oscars telecast but then I also saw that that red carpet hour that precedes the Oscars telecast had a 43% drop over last year interesting yeah, uh, yeah, but if everyone's I, just going to be we- if everyone's just going to be wearing black, you know, for yeah. times up. What's the point in looking at the gowns? So. I, I just feel mm-hmm. bad for the twenty percent of people who didn't turn in because they missed out on the hot dog cannon, right? And you know, with uh, <laughs> you know, with well executed, you know, uh, content like that that we'll all look back on fondly is not at all embarrassing or kitschy <laughs> or desperate. Uh, you know, it, it could bring a little bit of uh, you know magic back to the Oscars. Are TV numbers generally like falling off a cliff, or is it still a steady decline? For everything but football, yes. Interesting. Uh, football ratings are pretty good. The Super Bowl ratings have been holding pretty steady, but for everything else, TV ratings are falling off a cliff. And so that's why I said, you know, you have to put in context of a TV ratings in general are declining. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets the kind of TV numbers it used to, um, and B, it's about a bunch of movies nobody cares about. So, you know, since we're talking about the Oscars and we're sociologists and all, what do you all think about Frances McDormand's uh, mention of the inclusion clause, which it seemed like no one in the audience actually knew what it meant and then just started clapping after a pause? Well, can you explain it to me? I missed that uh, bit. Well, I mean, so I myself don't even really know what the inclusion clause is, but <laughs> I, from what I understand, it's, you know, it's this idea that, you know, when talent... Um, when talent is sitting down to sign a contract, they can ask for an inclusion clause, which basically dictates that um, 
that people working on the movie and you know it need not be uh it need not be actors um it you know it could also be crew and other staff associated with the movie um somehow quote unquote reflect uh the demographics uh, of our population so like half should be women you know 40 percent should be people of color 20 percent should be people with disabilities uh five percent or whatever should be lgbtq um you know those sorts of things right which you know sort of begs the question are we asking for a quota here you know that'll get shut down pretty pretty soon and and, you know, and what does that even really remedy? Um, you know, my brother's my brother's a film editor, and I could see someone using an inclusion clause, and then someone deciding to hire him not as an editor, but as you know, a second or a third or a fourth editor, right? Just you know, just to throw that in. So um, it seems like a very artificial way of having Hollywood deal with this problem you know, if you think it's a problem of inclusion. Well, that, that's my understanding from it as well. And like everybody, um, you know, I'd never heard of it before. Then, you know, you saw a bunch of explainer journalism uh, <laughs> the next day, which I, I, I guess is where you heard of it too. Um, and that, that does seem to be kind of the definition of it. Um, you know, I, I kind of my hunch is that to the extent that it gets taken up, which I don't know whether it will, you know, first of all, it does seem to be kind of uh, isomorphism thing where, you know, somebody who has uh, power is able to kind of push a new strategy on an industry, right? Which is mm -hmm. kind of a classic uh, diffu um, diffusion through isomorphism story. Um, and also kind of like Leslie was saying, I think that you'll see people try and figure out in what ways can we apply this, um, this system in ways that require uh, minimal disruption to our existing business practices. So okay. I wouldn't be surprised if you see certain occupations almost become specialty occupations that are kind of allocated towards this. Like, so it might be that there's no white men caterers in Hollywood in 10 years or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Because that could be an easy way to uh, meet the requirements of, uh, you know, uh, the numbers in these clauses that your uh, movie star asked to sign over. Yeah. But, you know, the, in general, the issue of like people putting clauses in um, contracts is, you know, Hollywood contracts are pretty complicated and uh, entertainment law is basically a cross between copyright law and contract law. Although typically the clauses people put in their uh, contracts are things about you have to treat me better, not you have to treat other people better. So like a famous oh, that's clause. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. yeah. What I appreciated about this was that it was a move away from thinking of a writer as something that's about the color of M&Ms you want in your green room, you know, to like something that really is about inclusion and equity and getting people those experiences or even lines on their resume. Right. That would really uh, end up transforming the course of a person's career. And so that was really cool to sort of like get the glimpse into how the sausage is made. Yeah. But I think just as in, you know, how people very often say, you know, what, Hollywood actors, you don't need to be weighing in on politics all the time. 
Um, I mean, there's some some actors who know what they're talking about, and then there are others who don't. And I actually think this whole inclusion clause thing um, was one of those instances of it sounds good on on it sounds good, right? But you know, let's look at the details here and see what that's actually going to mean and how people are actually going to implement such a. Clause. Well, I think realistically, what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of Hollywood people say that sounds good and then um, the studios are going to have to try and figure out how much it would cost them in order to implement them uh, because if it saved mm-hmm. them money they'd be doing it already presumably uh, but if it's costly for them to do so uh, the, especially in the short run you know when you're facing a, a short run supply constraint of supply of labor for people who meet various categories um, or for the matter if it invites litigation um you know, from people who say that it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's too hard-edged. It's not just a opportunity plan, but it's a quota. Um, do you think? Yeah. Do you think so, Gabriel? Do you really think it's about cost? I actually think it's about like lack of imagination, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, of course, all the extras we're going to get from over here because that's what we've always done, and you know, they all happen to be white. I mean. But why would we even question that? Well, right? I don't, or of course, I think going against your standard practices is costly. So uh, you know, even if you do conceive it just as uh, a lack of imagination, you know, finding ways to go against your, uh, you know, your habitual practices is itself costly. It requires a lot more time and effort. So I, I wouldn't draw uh, a hard and fast distinction between those, especially in the short run. In the long run, they might be a, a meaningful distinction. But anyway, it, it, let's assume for the sake of argument that there is some cost of whatever form to Hollywood of doing this. You know, Once they figure out what that cost is, they might very well say, well, you can ask for this clause, but then um, you know, we're going to give you two points less on DVD sales you know, or whatever. And, um, or you can ask for this clause, but then you can't, uh, insist that we make your vanity production company a production partner, but we'll just pay you straight right uh, outright as a work for hire. And you know, then once you make the the ask costly, you you may or may not see people back away from it because I think I feel like this is probably the kind of thing that a lot of people, if it's just like, sure, why shouldn't I ask for it? They'll ask for it. But once there's serious trade offs, um, then it might be less of a thing to ask for. But should we be thinking about this in terms of costs or in terms of risk? Well, I mean, a risk is just a cost and expected value terms. So, but what, why would it? Yeah. Why would you think about it in terms of risk? I mean, if you're hiring a bunch so, of below the line people, then what what risk is involved in there? I mean, is a is a an incompetent grip going to get someone electrocuted or something like that? <laughs> that? I don't know what a grip does, actually. I think they're some kind of electrician. I know they're one of the guys who wear cargo shorts, but that's all <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, I I think about it in terms of risk because I think that that's the language that Hollywood has often used when pushed to diversify, right, and to have greater levels of inclusion. So, no, we're not going to make a movie about that, right? Not because it's going to cost us a lot of money, but because there's this risk, right? You know, Um, they don't think about it in terms of cost benefit. They, you know what I mean? Or even just in terms of cost, it's, it's about risk. Oh, I think you're right. If you, if you phrase it between, I see this as an above the line, below the line issue. So in Hollywood budgeting above the line are basically anyone famous. 
So, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, if there's an Oscar for it that's presented in the daytime, that's above the line. I'm sorry, if there's an Oscar that's presented on Oscar night, that's above the line. And if it's an Oscar, if there's no Oscar at all, or it's a, one of the technical awards, that's below the line, right? So movie stars, screenwriters, directors, that's all above the line. Um, you know, all the guys who work, <clears throat> who are unionized under um, IATSE, you know, basically, um, you know, all the guys doing the electrical and lighting and cameras and all that sort of business and caterers, that's below the line. Um, and I would bet that it's much easier for them to meet this through below the line than through above the line, precisely because there's not really an issue of risk. You know, once you find yeah. a competent union grip, they're more or less um, interchangeable with each other. Um, now, there may be a shortage of competent union grips, right? Uh, you know, who meet various categories. But um, the, if you can get one, there's not really a risk. He's going to do pretty much the same job as anybody else. Um, it's the issue of risk of like, is this going to make the movie less appealing? That's more for above the line type issues. So what you're saying is that if there is some type of quota system that you'd expect studios to fulfill those quotas with low profile jobs and that there yes. would be a discernible difference in terms of the creative output. I think you'd see some, um, and there have been, uh, past waves where there's been an impetus for affirmative action programs in Hollywood. So for instance, in the late nineties, there was uh, a big social movement push about, um, network television being very white skewing. Uh, be and I think it was prompted by, for the fall season in like 1998 or something like that, all the new characters, um, all the new lead characters in every new network show in like 1998 or whatever it was, was white. And so um, in reaction to that, a bunch of the networks had basically affirmative action programs there they created. So for instance, I believe NBC had a rule that every writer's room had to have um, a uh, ethnic minority in a, at least one ethnic minority in the writer's room. Um, so, you know, and they created like a mentorship program for college students and that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, there have been cases where Hollywood has done this sort of thing before, but, you know, the, the, when I hear how the uh, inclusion rider was structured and that it can include above the line, below the line crew and all that sort of thing, I just think you're going to have a bunch of uh, black women caterers. Hmm. Although, you know, in thinking about this, you know, I, maybe I digress mm -hmm. a little bit, but I've been watching a lot of Pee Wee's Playhouse these past few weeks. We all. Um, right? Which, no, I'm like totally serious. My yeah. five-year-old discovered Pee Wee's Playhouse, and unlike her older sister, is totally not freaked out <laughs> by it. And I think about, like, I think about the supporting cast, these people who would show up. I mean, and you're just like, oh, my goodness, there's Lawrence Fishburne before he was Lawrence Fishburne, right? Um, there's Esapatha Murkison, right? You know, who we all know as, you know, Lieutenant Van Buren from the original Law and Order, right? These people who had these little parts in this, like, crazy show, yeah. right, that's supposed to be for kids, but is really for grown-ups, I think, and stoners. And, um, and <laughs> yeah, and this, and in some ways, like, you know, it got them a line, and it got them, you know, it got them launched to something. Well, that's partly a social right? network story, because um, <laughs> I think he came out of the ground links. He came out of some improv troupe or other, 
And a lot of the mm-hmm. people who were in at least the original version of the show, which was explicitly for adults, and they showed on HBO um, in like 1983 or something like that, a couple of years before the CBS uh, Saturday morning show launched. Um, so it had mm-hmm. like Phil Hartman. Um, and that was somebody who Pee Wee knew yeah. through um, improv. But at the same time, you know, so because I because I don't even think of Lawrence Fishburne as someone who went through the improv world, right? Um, well, you generally don't think of him as a comic actor. Yeah, exactly. I don't at yeah. all, except now in Blackish. But um, but yeah, I you know I think that there is something to be said. Um, there mm-hmm. is something to be said, even if you start little. What I worry about is that people will only will stay little. Right. And won't think about this in the broader context of the industry. So can I? Yeah, I think it. um, Oh, I'm sorry. It just bears saying that there is like a book in sociology that's come out in the past year about this very topic that Leslie is bringing up uh, by the sociologist Mm -hmm. Nancy Wang Yuan called Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. And so uh, I think, you know, she draws on a lot of sort of testimonials and narratives that are about these actors of color and the kind of structural barriers and social network barriers um, that everybody's talking about right here. So just as a resource to listeners who might be interested in that, uh, that's out there. In a way, this reminds me of uh, Canadian cultural content, which in some ways, you know, you can conceptualize as an affirmative action program. We don't think of it as an affirmative action program because it's not targeted at a particular race or ethnic group, but it is targeted at a national group, right, where the rule um, in Canadian broadcasting is that, you know, basically a a certain percentage of broadcasting has to be allocated to Canadian cultural content. And then there's all sorts of definitions of what counts as Canadian culture, cultural content. So, for instance, I believe the rule for pop music is that you take the person who wrote the song, the person who performed the song, and the person who produced the song, and if at least two out of the three are Canadians, then uh, that counts as Canadian cultural content, which you know presumably is a big boom to, say, Canadian songwriters. It certainly is. Yeah, So and it does seem to have been fairly successful in um, – launching the careers of Canadian artists, some of whom subsequently moved to the United States, but they have this kind of like niche within they can develop their talents. So that that's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how important it is today. I mean, I've been out of Canada for 20 years, but I was in radio in Canada in the 1990s, and it was one third of the songs that we had to play had to be of Canadian content. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening, I remember with our programming choices is it just sort of created a domestica elite sort of, I remember we would find whoever was popular in Canada and we would just play everything we could of them. And it was Mm -hmm. successful in developing like local superstars. This is my uh, anecdotal recollection. I'm sure there's somebody who studied this systematically, but my, my sense is that it absolutely did help in producing radio stars in Canada, like domestic radio stars, But, uh, you know, it didn't just open the floodgates to all Canadian artists. That's so fascinating. Netta, are you Canadian? I'm not. I was born and raised in the States, did my whole education in the U.S., and moved here for a job four years ago. Yeah, so what's interesting is two of the four of us Hmm. were born in Canada. One of the four of us was raised in Canada, and one of the four of us works in Canada. (laughs) Just a little tea. (laughs) Now, do you find that they push, they still push a lot of Canadian content in Canada? 
Is that your impression? Yeah, they do. You know, um, I think that the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the proportion now is 40% of, oh, you know, like content on the radio and such needs to be on there. There are certain restrictions, I think, even uh, from the time period that you're describing, Joe, where like now the content absolutely must be played between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. because mm -hmm. it used to be the programmers would sometimes shunt the Canadian radio to like off hours, what were yeah. called beaver hours in the wee small hours of the morning. And so in some ways, um, this has been hardened and regulated. But I want to suggest that this is actually like somewhat the norm if you're not in the United States. Like mm -hmm. there are these sorts of quotas in France, South Africa, Mexico. And so, you know, this is really about like... I mean, not to make it just about globalization or American imperialism, but now that I live in a country that's not the United States, I do see that actually, like, this is sort of the norm for how you organize and build a national, you know, cultural sort of infrastructure. Yeah, and it's a big deal in uh, trade diplomacy, because yeah. one way to look at this is that it's a, you know, in one sense, it's uh, cultural protection. In another sense, it's a, uh, it's a restriction on trade. Right, it's it's explicitly an attempt to give domestic production an attempt uh, an advantage um, in industry, and we think of it a little differently because it's culture, not widgets. But you know, the French have been pushing this idea of l'exception culturelle, and of course, uh, American trade diplomacy hates this because it's a uh, it's explicitly an attempt to protect against our one of our largest export sectors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although I remember I was very much in favor of it, and I, I still am. You know, uh, on the other side of it, I can see how people really care about representation and cultural sovereignty, and uh, I bet a lot of Canadians would be able to be willing to give up a lot of economic, uh, you know, make a lot of economic sacrifices to maintain a, a protected domestic culture. And the way you can tell it's successful is because it then has influences on American culture where we have Wheels Ontario. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Wheels Ontario. So that show, right, Kroll Show, I think yeah. uh, came out the year that we had moved to Toronto and it was just incredible. It was like every little kind of snippy or snide observation that we'd made was just blown up in front of us. Oh, yeah. it was too good. I love it. Yeah, they had us dead. I love that show because it's, it's fundamentally about linguistics, <laughs> right? Like almost every bit is about, um, you know, some subtlety of regional accents that you didn't pick up on. <laughs> You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisette Moreno. On behalf of The Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.